Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. I started thinking about what would it be like to be in a civil war. Right there, your neighbors fighting against you, your neighbors believing you were the devil. David Holt was there that night, too, and me and Polly Bowman rescued him and took him off up into the woods when the shooting started. Um, but ironically, the the only person that was with the Shelton Law crowd, Gary Cook, uh, who wound up being killed, was a cousin, a close cousin to, we called him Snoochie, but his real name was Martin. Um, Norton, who was the fellow that went home and got his gun and came back. So there's always been that kind of an edge. And there's always been an edge between that part of the county and Marshall. And I like that story, too, because it's such a human interest Mm -hmm. story where... Uh, both sides of the wounded, and I would call it a skirmish, and I don't know how many on each side, but both of them were brought into the hotel, and of course my grandmother was right there taking care of them. And she had uh, in her arms a young Union soldier, and he'd been very badly wounded, and he died in her arms. So she cut off a lock of his hair, and she said he was so young, and he had this lovely sort of curly, wavy, blonde hair. And she got his address and sent this to his mother, and they wrote back and forth as long as they lived, Mm -hmm. but never met each other. I would hear um, a, a lingering bias all the way up into the 80s, 1980s. Um, and there were actually some families who changed the spelling of their name uh, slightly because they didn't want to be associated with that rebel side of the family or that union side of the family. This is one of the stories where sometimes a fiddler uh, fiddles his way out of a predicament by fiddling a tune, but this guy knew that he was doomed. So he felt like he needed to make a statement. And the tune that he fiddled was uh, uh, kind of a slap in the face to the Confederacy at that particular time. It was a tune known throughout the mountains fairly well, Bonaparte's Retreat. Well, to add insult to injury, there's a little part in that song. If he started off in that section of the song, it sounded like somebody's making fun of you or something. And uh, at any rate, uh, they were executed there. There was a band called Keats Detail, or Home Guards, and they captured 13 men and boys on January 18, 1863, and took them to Aunt Judy Shelton's to guard them. But Pete McCoy knocked the guard down and got away. 
Next morning, they marched them out, but left Johnny Norton under the bed asleep. They took the 13 down to the John Chanley place and stood them up in a row and shot them. There are stories where the characters and events are so extraordinary and gripping that one can miss their overall meaning. It can be easy to take stories like the one you're about to hear at face value and leave their larger context unrealized. But even the most casual reading of the events and people of Madison County, North Carolina from 1863 should raise a lot of red flags about our own worst tendencies. Even a Pulp Fiction version of the Shelton Laurel Massacre would lend plenty of insight into the all-too-often dark heart of humanity. But pull the lens back and consider these events, their beginnings and repercussions in the arc of history, and you might come to an even more chilling conclusion. What caused neighbors and kinfolk to terrorize and murder one another in the Appalachian Mountains all those generations ago? What larger forces that worked to bring out the cruelty and violence this chapter of history reveals? And what hatred and divisions that earned the place the moniker Bloody Madison are not only in history books, they are with us today. It would be nice to think that because America went through its civil war and Shelton Laurel had its massacre, that it cannot happen again. But once you get sight of the forest beyond all its trees in this bit of history, you might wonder. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is the first of two episodes on the Shelton Laurel Massacre. You heard our guests in the show intro, and I had the pleasure of interviewing three of them recently for this episode. Taylor Barnhill, Sheila K. Adams, and Vicki Lane. Three more voices you heard were Peggy Dodderer, Bobby McMillan, and Bill Morris, captured more than 30 years ago on the live radio show Over Home, a series that was broadcast on WNCW in its early years. Taylor Barnhill and Sheila K. Adams, who were then married, worked together to produce the show, and Bobby McMillan joined them as co-host. This is the second time we have dipped into the Overhome archives on Southern Songs and Stories, the first being our episode titled Going Over Home with Doc Watson. In these episodes, you'll hear much about the Shelton Laurel Massacre as well as some other events during the war in the region, like the story of the fiddler Henry Grooms that Bill Morris told in the introduction to this episode. Both sides of the conflict had heroes and villains in their ranks and there were many extraordinary people involved. There was Nance Franklin, the Union spy who narrowly escaped death when her home was burned down and her three sons were killed by Confederate troops of the 14th North Carolina Battalion. And there was Lucy Rumbo, who was widely thought to be a Union spy, who gave away Confederate Brigadier General John Hunt Morgan's hiding place in nearby Greenville, Tennessee. And Confederate Colonel Lawrence Allen, whose house in the town of Marshall was burglarized in the salt raid that was the flashpoint for the Shelton Laurel Massacre. Colonel Allen's family was terrorized during the burglary, and his children, who were terribly sick with scarlet fever, would both die shortly thereafter. There was Pete McCoy, who would have been executed by Colonel Allen's 64th North Carolina Regiment, but escaped captivity and later went on to hunt down and kill as many as 20 or 30 of its soldiers. And Judy Shelton, who bore ten children to two fathers and managed to keep her inheritance by never getting married. There is music to get to as well, and you heard Bonaparte's retreat to start the show performed by Fiddlin' Arthur Smith and his Dixie Liners. Right now you are hearing Beautiful Dreamer, 
a Stephen Foster composition from the band Hesperus from their album A Civil War Scrapbook. And it's fitting to feature Foster's work here, not only because he was so incredibly popular before, during, and after the Civil War, but also because of the small irony that he was so celebrated for his Southern-themed songs like Swanee River and My Old Kentucky Home, while he was never sympathetic to the Confederacy and only visited the South once while on his honeymoon. There's no shortage of irony in the story of the Shelton Laurel Massacre. The setting for such a gruesome event is quite beautiful, which is one of the ironies I witnessed firsthand when I visited the home of Vicki Lane, who moved to the high country in Madison County, North Carolina, from suburban Tampa, Florida in 1975. Vicki wrote a series of mystery novels before setting her focus on the Shelton Laurel Massacre, which she meticulously researched as she worked over a number of years to write her historical novel, And the Crows Took Their Eyes. Joining us was Taylor Barnhill, who shared with me all of the Over Home episodes, and who introduced me to both Vicki Lane and Sheila K. Adams, who is descended from many of the people directly involved in the massacre and whose family tree is firmly rooted in those mountains going back to the early 1700s. I started our conversation by asking about their thoughts on the ramifications of the massacre all these years later. Here's Sheila K. Adams, followed by Vicki Lane and Taylor Barnhill. Well, the Shelton Massacre was still being talked about when I was uh, born in 1953, uh, <clears throat> mainly because the Sheltons, uh, well, my sixth great-grandfather back in the 1800s, early 1800s, was uh, uh, Godfrey Shelton, and they called him Duck Shelton. So he was not involved directly in the the Shelton Oil Massacre, but there was a a bunch of his relatives that that died that day with those men that they captured. And the biggest thing, Mama said it was uh, mainly just taking care of old grudges that that people had formed over the years. And she said a grudge is stronger than love. You can take it to the grave with you and pass it down to the next generation. (laughs) So I think there were... Not so many Confederates over in the, the end of the county where I lived, a little place called Sodom, which is over the ridge from Shelton Laurel. And, um, well, to give you an idea, my Uncle Ward, I made a comment that it was, I, I said, well, I guess it was dangerous to go up on Shelton Laurel as back when you were born in, 18, in 1925. And he said, why? It was dangerous to go up on Shelton Laurel in 1965 if people didn't know you. Um, but Shelton Laurel's always had kind of a, I think, a mysterious kind of, almost like a pall over it. You know, it's uh, the, when after the massacre happened, I think folks were just, well, I, Probably all of them suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I think that has made, because violence begets violence. And I think that that's probably made a huge difference in the way that that the folks that stayed on Shelton Law see the world. Um, But I'll tell you what, I've got more Shelton cousins than I've got any any other kind of cousins now. So, Um, But as far as how has it influenced, uh, 
I think the farther away that we get from it, um, the the younger generation is not really, I don't think, going to maintain the passing down the story. I'm glad that Vicki has written this book. It wasn't easy writing that. Um, I didn't grow up like Sheila with hearing stories about it. In fact, I was never interested in Civil War stuff. I never read Civil War books. And um, I grew up in Tampa. Uh, I and my relatives were all from Florida or Alabama. And surely some of them probably fought in the war, the, the war. But I never, no one ever talked about it. Uh, it was just not a big deal. When I moved here, then here was history right in my face, right downtown Marshall. There's Colonel Allen's house. And um, people talked about, don't go out to Shelton Laurel. And this was in, this was in uh, the late 70s. Don't go out to Shelton Laurel. And um, that all just sort of percolated around in my brain. But I went on to write some mysteries set basically in a place like Madison County. But when the election in 2016 started and people were so divided, people were so sure that they were right, this side was right and the other side was the very devil or vice versa, I started thinking about what would it be like to be in a civil war right there, your neighbors fighting against you, your neighbors believing you were the devil. Um, And I started thinking, I think I really need to write about the Shelton Laurel Massacre. And then I started into the research that uh, led me every which way. Uh, The the stories are so, um, so vague or so precise that you wonder if it's really, was that really true? But, but the whole time I was writing this book, and it took years, uh, I saw the same thing going on in our country, and it's still going on today with the two sides so divided that they can't hear the other person's side. When I wrote my book, I tried to give both sides of the story. I tried to talk about it from the points of view of people on both sides, just forcing myself to see um, why people could believe believe that way yeah it's it's quite remarkable um and something difficult to comprehend when you have neighbors and family members who uh have different perspectives let me give just kind of a broader view of the geography here shelton laurel is along the tennessee border it's a big beautiful valley it was the first place i lived when i moved here i I bought a farm up there um, and I was warned, because most of the back-to-the-landers of that period said, you don't want to live in Shelton Laurel. But I met another couple who had moved there, and the people were wonderful. Um, you know, my, about the third day I was there, I was living in this shack that a neighbor had loaned me. And this young teenage boy walked up, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Well, he reached his hand out and handed me a beautiful string of trout, that he had just caught in the creek behind my cabin, and he said, I thought you might like these, and walked away. And that was kind of the, the way that, that they took care of us folks who were trying to farm and trying to make a living, similar to the way the Cherokee did the white settlers. You know, the, so a lot of people say if the, if the Cherokee didn't help the white settlers, they wouldn't have survived here. 
But that Shelton Laurel Valley, because of its proximity to Tennessee and Greenville, and to some extent Flag Pond and Irwin, they did their shopping uh, with Tennessee. Tennessee tended to be Unionist through most of the war. Uh, there's wonderful stories about Lucy Rumbo uh, and Colonel Mo- uh, General Morgan. Was it Colonel Morgan or General Morgan? Colonel. Yeah, and uh, exposing where he was hiding. I mean, but the um, they tended to be Unionist, and that certainly didn't go over well with the county seat in Marshall because there was a vote coming up, and they had to vote whether to be part of the secession or not. And um, it, there was very hard feelings, and a lot of them were, were kin. Most of the folks were kin. And uh, so they began to, there was a bias against those Shelton Laurel people, which included not giving them their fair share of salt. And salt was crucial to survive because the meat that they grew, which was mostly pork, had to be salted. And uh, that was kind of at the, at the heart of the issue. Uh, so the, the salt raid on Marshall was one of the uh, precipitous events that, that got all of this started. But it, like Sheila said, I, I would hear um, a, a lingering bias all the way up into the 80s, 1980s, um, and there were actually some families who changed the spelling of their name uh, slightly because they didn't want to be associated with that rebel side of the family or that union side of the family. And um, I don't know, Sheila, was the, you remember the shootout uh, up in the Morris Cove when yeah. was, was it the Smithsonian came down here in the Southern yeah. Laurel Festival? I always heard, maybe from you, but others, that that went back to those same families and those same grudges, and that was in the 70s, right? Right. Uh, It was actually uh, these four men from West Virginia got a Ford Foundation grant to put on these festivals at various places in the southern Appalachians, and Sodom wound up being one of them. And while they were over there, there was while they were having the festival, there was a group of men from... Um, Shelton Laurel that came actually to Sodom and they'd had some mess that went on between two of the men one from Sodom and one from Shelton Laurel and so what wound up happening was a cousin of mine um, heard that they were a bunch of men coming from Shelton Laurel so he went home and got his gun and met them down at the what we called down at the community store there in Sodom, and shot and killed uh, one of the men and wounded several of the others. And I remember uh, one of the fellows from Shelton Laurel actually made reference to the Shelton Laurel Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be another massacre, just like they had on Shelton Laurel back in the war. And when was this? That, that would have been in 1973, thereabouts. Yeah, John was at that festival the night before, and he said, you know, people started leaving because they had heard that there was someone with guns. And right. he said as they were going out, driving out, there was a fellow in a park, parked in a truck, shining a flashlight in each car, and he had a 
he had a shotgun, you know, out the car window. And John was just like, oh, Lord, you know, yeah. let me out of here. This is your husband, John. Yeah, husband well, John. well, David Holt was there that night, too. And me and Polly Bowman rescued him and took him off up into the woods when the shooting started. Um, but ironically, the the only person that was with the Shelton Law crowd, Gary Cook, uh, who wound up being killed, was a cousin, a close cousin to, we called him Snoochie, but his real name was Martin um, Norton, who was the fellow that went home and got his gun and came back. So there's always been that kind of an edge, and there's always been an edge between that part of the county and Marshall. The date was actually September 19th, 1976, and two other people were hospitalized, but Gary O'Dell Cook was the only one to die in the Sunday afternoon confrontation that involved a dozen or more men, which had begun around midnight the night before. But it had really begun more than a century before that in those same mountains, and had simmered for all those generations since. Which was my first thought when Sheila described the fight. The fact that the hatred and mistrust between neighbors and family members had lingered all those many years was a surprise, But even more revelatory was Sheila's theory on why there was a powder keg ready to ignite in so many people's hearts back in the 19th century. It actually goes back much further than the Civil War. As the William Faulkner quote says, the past is never dead, it's not even past. Sheila K. Adams wrote the novel My Old True Love, which takes place in Sodom, North Carolina, and is based on the history of the Shelton Laurel Massacre. She released an album based on the novel called All the Other Fine Things. And from that, you are now hearing the medley 8th of January, Cumberland Gap, 8th day of January, which is based on old Kentucky fiddle tunes. 8th of January was eventually made into the hit song The Battle of New Orleans in the late 1950s. 8th of January is a song that, in the novel, Pete McCoy references when telling the tale of the massacre the song which Hackley Norton brought to Sodom after learning it in the Union Army from some Kentucky soldiers. It's the same song, one of many, that was embraced by both sides of this conflict. It's a part of the soundtrack that would have been playing in the minds of everyone involved when it all went down in January 1863. There is much more of this story to tell, including more about the events before and after the massacre, and the larger-than-life characters that often were perhaps more like us than we might like to think. There was also another big surprise that I was not prepared for, and more music pointing back to the era and the Civil War. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and might like to talk to someone you know and let them know about it. You can follow the series on podcast platforms everywhere, and once you do, it helps even more when you give it a good rating and a review. Spreading awareness by giving this series a top rating, and even more so with a review, will make Southern songs and stories, and the artists it profiles more likely to be found by more people just like you. Southern songs and stories is a part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Carol Rifkin for pointing me to much of the music here, to Sean Rubin for converting tapes of the show over home to digital format, 
and to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories.